Thanks for coming this morning, by the way. Um, my name is Mike. I'm one of the elders, and I have the privilege of bringing the word to you this morning. And um, always an honor and a privilege. Man, it's just so humble. Every time, it's just so humbling. So just thinking about uh, this morning as the songs we sing, man, just running to his arms this week. Uh, we talked to this morning in our prayer time about our dependency on Christ, man, and that is just what I've been uh, challenged with, so challenged with over the last several weeks is just me being dependent um, on him for everything, whether it's, whether it's work or dad stuff or being a husband or, um, you know, my spiritual growth, uh, just relying on him to be, uh, to be God in my life. So, um, and there's a little kickback on this. I'm sorry to do that, but can I get that turned down a little bit? Sorry, there's like a ringing. Um, so anyway, we're going we're gonna to look at uh, the book of Mark this morning. That is perfect, thank you. And we're going to continue through our, our study in the book of Mark. Um, but I wanted to share an experience with you that I had this week. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll share a little of my, uh, I'll be vulnerable with you. Got a speeding ticket. Uh, in June, but I wasn't my fault, right? That's what they all say, right? Um, I, have, I have received my fair share of speeding tickets. Gosh, okay, quick story, another quick story. My first speeding ticket I ever got was like two weeks after I got my license. And my dad is a police officer, or was a police officer at the time. Man, I wasn't going to tell the story, so I got to do it quick. Uh, so he I get my, my, uh, my speeding ticket, and the rule was I pay my ticket, and for every mile an hour over uh, the speed limit, I lose my license for that many days. That's, that's the rule. So um, I'm late coming home, so I'm past my curfew, and uh, I, I walk in, and they're in bed, and I, they say, what happened? And I just, I had my license and the ticket, and I just laid it on a side table, and I said, I got a ticket. There's my license for 16 days. Um, you can have it, and, uh, and, and there it was. So uh, about five or six years ago, <clears throat> I figure out that my dad made me pay that ticket, and um, it was around 100 bucks, I think, for my ticket, and um, he actually had a friend in the police department in the jurisdiction that I got it in. He went, he got the ticket fixed, and he kept 100 bucks and took my mom out to dinner, so... <laughs> I, I did not find that funny uh, at the time. <laughs> I've gotten my fair share of tickets uh, over my driving career. Uh, most of them earlier on in my driving career have calmed down quite a bit now. I have never, not, not one time, have I ever gone to fight a ticket. Uh, because I do, I understand if I'm breaking the rules and I get caught, uh, that I should, I should own up to that. Um, this time, however, I did not feel that way. I, uh, <laughs> I got this ticket uh, I was going, uh, the, the police officer told me that I was going 60 in a 55 in a construction zone with workers present. I found out that ticket was $430 and that, uh, uh, that I would need to pay that by a certain date. So I went to court the first time. Uh, they asked me if I uh, wanted to decline the ticket. Um, I said I declined the ticket. They told me that October 7th at 2 o'clock I need to come prepared with evidence uh, and witnesses and I, I, could, I could plead my case. So... October 7th, that was this last Monday. So anyway, I'm going to try to keep the story short because it's super long, but I don't, I'm not even really wanting to tell you about my ticket. I don't care. Long story short of my ticket, the cop didn't show up, and I won. 
So it was fine. Um, but I was prepared. And if you care to see it, I will show you all my photographic evidence. <laughs> I have video, and I had two witnesses. So I was ready to go. Um, I had this experience, and before, before even I got to, to have my, my day in court, there were several other people there that have their day in court. And uh, we, we were, uh, my buddy and I, who was my witness, uh, got there about 1.30. My trial, my bench trial was not set till about 2 o'clock, and we just got to kind of observe and see what was going on. And um, essentially what happened was uh, there was a bunch of, of people there in the room, and they were calling them up, the state versus blank. And they would come up to the stand. They would say, hey, you owe the court $180. Uh, when can you pay that? And the person would beg and plead and say, please, can I get on the uh, payment plan? Yes, if you get paid uh, on the payment plan by X date, then you may you don't have to come back to court. Get on the payment plan, take care of it, and you move on. They burned in turn. I mean, they were doing those. There was probably 10 or 15 of those in probably 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and so they were just kind of coming up one after the other. While that's happening, there's four men who uh, come into a buzzed, unlocked door. So it's like, and then the guys come in, and there's two guys shackled together, and then two guys shackled together. And they come, and then they sit kind of like where I think the jury would sit. And they're, they're there to, um, to have their charges formally announced and then their trial date set. And so they kind of go uh, throughout um, the three guys, and I think one was like a DUI, and uh, one was maybe theft, but all of that noise from the first three was drowned out by the, the fourth. The fourth was, um, you know, like assault with a deadly weapon, domestic abuse, and this and that and the other. I mean, it just, the charges kind of went on and on and on, uh, and the court has, the state has, you know, 72 hours to prove their case, and then they talk about bail, so the prosecutor asked uh, for bail, or he asked for remand because the man had shot his wife and then returned to the hospital uh, after he shot his wife. And my, my buddy and I are just sitting there, and we're just, like, shocked, you know. And so there's obviously a very serious crime that's been committed. They're trying to, uh, you know, prove their case. And uh, that guy's going to go to jail for, for a while until, uh, until his trial. So these guys come up. Then there was a really interesting uh, situation where... A man and his lawyer, by the way, all this time, the courtroom's just emptying out. It's just, just me. There's no, other, there's no other people there. And the last thing that happened was um, there was a man uh, with his lawyer and a, and, a, and a prosecutor, and he had gotten busted for selling cocaine in 2006. He had uh, pled out and pled guilty. He served his time, and uh, after he served his time, uh, he has since gotten his associate's degree. He's got a fiance. He's got a couple kids. He was there asking the court to expunge his record uh, to remove that um, because he felt like it was uh, hindering him. So he couldn't get a higher paying job than he had right then. Every time he was applying for a new job, man, that felony was on there and uh, they'd kind of look the other way. He wanted to get married to his his uh, now fiance, but he was worried that if they got married, now she's married to a felon. What does that look like for her and also for his kids? And, you know, what kind of school could they get into if they wanted to maybe seek private school? And he just said, you know, hey, this, well, that's what I said too. Um, he, he said, he said uh, you know, basically, 
I, I just, I just, I've served my time, and I'd like, to, I'd like to have this off my record so that I can move on with my life. The judge was super sympathetic. He had a concerned look on his face. His body language was forward. If it was me, I probably would have said, yeah, you served your time, you know, take it off. I, I don't know. I mean, that's just a, in a court of law. I'm not a judge. I don't understand how all that works. But I was thankful that the judge at least was concerned for him. Then I came up, <laughs> and I was the only one there, and they called me up to the stand, and I, they asked me if I was ready to, uh, ready to present my case, and I said, yes, sir, I am. Um, and then they asked the state if they were ready to present their case, and they said, no, sir, we're not. We subpoenaed officer so-and-so, I can't remember his name, and, um, and he, uh, you know, failed to communicate, failed to contact us, and he's not here today. So we request for a continuance, and in my head, I'm like, yeah, right. You know, we're not continuing this thing. And so before I could say anything, the judge asked me, Mr. Taylor, do you object? And I said, yes, sir, I do. Um, you know, obviously, I had to make sure that I was prepared for my trial. They should be prepared for their trial. Uh, so the, the judge uh, denied the request for a continuance. Uh, they asked to dismiss the case, and they said, I'm free to go. I walked out, and I don't have to pay a ticket. So it's pretty steep. Why in the world am I telling you this story? Because it's funny. It is funny. It was cool. It was a different experience. Never, never really done anything like that. Um, it was humbling. You know, we're all in the same place. The guy who shot his wife is at the same place that the guy who sped in a construction zone with workers present. Um, the guy who has a DUI is shackled together with the guy who shot his wife. Um, after reflecting on my time in the situation, I really saw the, how the Lord works. As we look at Scripture and see God as judge, as God as ruler, as God as King of kings and Lord of lords, as we see Him as Our Savior. Our God is bigger and has conquered all of our to pay hearing. We have nothing left to pay because He paid it all at the cross. For the men that entered the courtroom with their charges and that are their potential charges and their potential sentence coming, I was reminded that all sin separates us from God. All sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the guy that shot his wife. The man who wants his records expunged so he can move on with his life. What a powerful story of how God erases our sin and allows us to be seen as righteous. See, we are never told that we are not guilty. We are told that our sentence has been paid. He is our propitiation. These people that I saw on Monday have real-world issues that have real-world consequences. However, my legal experience, by the way, I'm 1-0 in my legal proceedings, gave me a better understanding as how I stand before God. 
I stand free and righteous before God because he took care of my two-pay hearing. I'm free because Jesus, on my behalf, takes my judgment and my sentence for my sin. And he does this all for those who believe in him. He stands in a place that I can't. I would be dead and separated from him for eternity, but because of his power, because of the work on the cross, death is defeated, sin no longer has a grip, and we are declared righteous. Jesus' role in the gospel message is why today our passage is his triumphal entry, is why he can ride in on a donkey and be triumphant is why we stand and serve a king that is king of kings and lord of lords, that he is above every man-made created name. It is this type of power that we serve. It is this type of power that we find our salvation. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your love and your care for us, God, your power, your majesty, your holiness. Father, we bow our hearts before you this morning in reverent awe of who you are. That you are God. May we remember this morning, may we be challenged this morning to remember your holiness and who you are. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand and read God's word together, Mark 11, 1 through 11. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt, tied uh, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went, and they found a colt tied to a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. He And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple and he looked around at everything, and it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. You may be seated. Let me give you a little bit of, uh, of perspective. I did this last time, got some good feedback. So if you wouldn't mind uh, throwing that map up there for me, uh, we'll, see, uh, we'll see kind of what we're, what we're looking at here. So you see Jerusalem on the uh, left side of the screen, screen, Bethany on the right side of the screen. And so they're hanging out uh, basically right, about, uh, right, right in that little town there. Bethphage is, in, is the next city ahead, um, and Jerusalem is where they are heading. Now, remember, I told you way back when I got to preach on the feeding of the 5,000 that, that 
these passages and that the miracles that Jesus is performing and that every time we see him teaching uh, the disciples, every time we see him teaching the crowd, it's all coming to one moment and we are just about there. This is the last week of Jesus' ministry. And so he arrives at the city of Bethany, which is where Lazarus was raised from the dead. It's where, where Mary and Martha live. And so when he goes back to Bethany uh, at the end of our passage, he's just basically going to spend the night at their homes because he's coming back the next day. Uh, uh, so that's where Bethany is, and that's what uh, Bethany is. Mind you, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people following this man. He's come from city to city, right? He's done miracles. He keeps picking up people as they go. They get saved, and there's a bunch of people that follow him. They, they get healed, and there's a bunch of people that follow him. They, they get fed, and there's a bunch of people that follow him. And so he's got a huge entourage, if you will, and he's walking from city to city, now going to Jerusalem. Let me remind you as well that I think Nate, it was Nate or Stephen, but one of them mentioned that John chapter 11 verse where Thomas says, hey, let us too go with him that we may die. So just to put it all in perspective, here's where they are. That's the amount of people they were with. And the disciples knew <coughs> we're coming to the end. This is dangerous stuff. There's already people that want to kill him. There's already people that don't like him. We're going to go to, let's all go for it. We trust him. We're moving forward. With that said and our scene set, I want you to, to just take a look at this, this passage with me because a lot of times we, we uh, talk about this passage at what time? Easter. Thank you. Easter. <coughs> And we talk about this passage at, at Easter, starting the week of the Passion uh, as, as the king coming into Jerusalem. And that's exactly what is happening, is the king is coming into Jerusalem. And I wanted to make sure that we understand today that our response to Jesus ought to be one that understands his kingship. Our response to him should be one that understands his kingship. And so I want to show you five different things today out of this passage of how we should be responding to Jesus. Verse 1 and 2. Now when he drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus uh, sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. The first point I want you to understand is that Jesus knows what he is doing. The king knows what he is doing. Let me explain a little bit to you. If you could throw that map up. I'm gonna, I know I told you we could put that map down, but one more time. So, <clears throat> so you see that they're in Bethany right now. Then it's Bethphage, then it's the temple. They're coming out from out of town to in town, right? And they just arrived at Bethany. And you see in this passage right here, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent out two. Why is that backwards? Right? If, if we were to make 
sense of the passage, right? Or geographically, at least, we would say, as he drew near to Bethany, Bethphage, and Jerusalem. But he doesn't say it that way. Well, the reason is, scholars believe, is that he's using a literary device here to indicate that this is more than just a geographical journey. He's not just entering one city to another because he's entering one city to another because this is a ginormous spiritual journey. This is a huge moment in the life of Christ. And Mark is letting us know that by by changing the wording up a little bit, by saying, hey, uh, look at this. Make sure you pay attention to what I'm saying. Remember, the disciples know that these are dangerous times. They know what they're heading into. And so when Jesus tells them to go to a city and steal a colt, that sounds a little bit dangerous. That sounds a little bit different. And why a cult that no one has sat on before? Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would we get an unbroken cult? If you know anything about training a donkey, let alone a horse, and breaking a horse, it's a difficult task. You don't just jump on an unbroken cult. But they do it anyway. Why is he doing this? He knows what he is doing. This is one reason he's doing this, is he's fulfilling prophecy out of Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, we're not talking about prophecy right now, and that's a, it's a great study. And it is amazing to see how many prophetical statements are in the Old Testament that speak to his coming, to, that speak to his victory, and that speak to the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And this is one of those times where we get to see his power in prophecy being fulfilled. Also, he knows what he's doing because he's getting ready to show his control over nature. If, if the guy can calm storms in a boat, and make people walk on water, don't you think that he can break an unbroken cult? Absolutely. The king knows what he's doing. The king wants to use your life. The king wants to use you. If anyone says to you, in in verse 3, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. The Lord has need of it. Does he need anything? Does God need anything? No. We would say that he is all sufficient and he needs nothing. But he brings into play a human aspect of his plan. He says, one, I need you to go get my colt. Two, I need a colt. And he chooses people. He chooses us to work in his plan. God doesn't need us, but he wants us. He doesn't need us to serve him. He doesn't need us to worship him. It even says in Luke's uh, 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 depiction of this, there's some Pharisees there. 
And they're telling them, hey, stop screaming Hosanna. You should, tell your, you should tell your people, stop, because you're not the chosen one. And you know what he tells them? If they didn't, if they didn't cry out, the rocks would. He doesn't need us to praise him. Nature would. He doesn't need nature or animals to do it. The rocks will. The fact is, is that he doesn't necessarily need us, but he wants us to serve him. And our response to a king should be one of obedience in verses 4 through 6. The king's orders should be obeyed even if we don't understand. And that's a tough kicker for a lot of us. Is that in 4 through 6, these guys go away in dangerous times to an unknown situation and basically pull like that move that in the movies where you see like a cop and he like jumps out in front of a car and he's like, whoa, 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 Fort Wayne, PD, I need this car. And like he just takes that, you know, takes the person out and then steals their car. That's what these guys are doing. They're going into a town and they're just like, uh, we're going to take your donkey. That, that doesn't make any sense. But what do they do? They go and they get the donkey. Verses four, uh, 4 and 5 and 6. And they went away and found a colt tied uh, at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And for some of those standing there, they said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and then they let them go. Now, <clears throat> there, is some, there, there is some controversy, if you will, over how this all worked out. Um, you know, is this a divine or supernatural action that, that Jesus has in the moment where he knows exactly where the cult is and he knows exactly what the response is going to be and he intervenes in a divine way to make sure that this situation happens exactly how uh, he wants it to happen? Or uh, was it a prepared situation um, like the, uh, the Last Supper, right? So the Last Supper happens, and he actually talked to a guy beforehand. He said, hey, I need this upper room prepared. Me and my disciples are going to go there. The disciples are going to know um, by the guy that at the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the pool of Siloam, there's a guy, a guy going to be with a, a jar on his head, and he is going to lead them to the upper room. And he had this all like planned out ahead of time because he knew the people. Now, again, we know that from the map, hey, he's really familiar with Bethany. He's really familiar with Bethphage and also Jerusalem. So he knew people. Mind you, he's teaching and, and doing miracles. So people know him. And so these guys come and, 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 and maybe the guy knew and maybe the guy didn't know. However, we know the disciples didn't know. They didn't know that situation. They just knew that they were to obey, period. And they were to go and get it. Not only that, then the guy obeyed, right? The Lord has need of it. And he says, cool, bring it back with a full tank of gas. They don't understand necessarily what they're doing or why they're doing it, but they do it anyway. Kind of reminds you of something like when Jesus called the disciples and he said, hey, put down your nets and come and follow me. They had no idea. They had no idea what they were getting themselves into. Kind of reminds you of, of Abraham when he's called to go to a place. He has zero idea where he's going, but he goes anyways. 
He goes to the land. I think some of us uh, uh, miss, uh, let, me, let me rephrase. I miss, I miss sometimes God's blessing and his leading because I just want his supernatural ability to tell what's going to happen. I want him to tell me all his plans. Hey, lay it out for me, why we're doing it, when we're doing it, who we're doing it for. Um, am I going to face opposition in this? Okay, yes, I am. How am I going to face opposition? How can I stand against it? You outline all these things for me. I'll go do what you asked me to do. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that because faith is what God has asked us to have. And it is by faith that Abraham went into the wilderness. It is by faith that these disciples went out. It's by faith that the disciples followed Jesus in the first place. And that's what God wants us to experience is righteousness through faith. It is not important for me to understand what God is going to do because he owes me no explanation. What is important is we owe him our obedience. I owe him my obedience. Because of who he is, he is the king, period. And when I lose sight of that, and when I forget to be reverent of that, and I forget that my knee should be bowed before the king of kings and lord of lords, then I start to lose sight and lose focus of what he's called me to do, which is obey his word and his truth. Also, lastly, in that little section is when people don't understand our obedience, because not only did they go and just obey, right? They went to a town and they untied this colt and they're getting ready to steal it and people asked them. When people don't understand our, our obedience, we still owe them an answer. And I think sometimes we get caught up and maybe cop out and just going. Hey, the Lord told me to. Hey, the Lord told me to. Hey, well, how do I know? They give them an answer that the Lord told them, and they said, hey, the Lord needs it, and he's going to return it. Peter tells us to be ready to give an answer in season and out of season. When we walk by faith and we walk in obedience, and when people have questions, we should be prepared to give an answer. The king is worthy of praise. The king is worthy of praise. Pick up with me in verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches as they had cut them from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Anybody notice that he gets on the unbroken colt? On the colt in which nobody has sat, which is also a, a little parallel of what is a, maybe a little foreshadowing of what is to come as the spotless lamb comes into Jerusalem. That when, when the people take their cloaks 
and throw them on the unbroken coal? That it just accepts the makeshift saddle? That Jesus then sits upon it? That there's thousands of people around the unbroken colt, waving branches, screaming, laying their cloaks on the road, steady on the course. (coughs) Putting their cloaks on the road is an ancient show of submission. So when a king or a victor of war would come into a city after victory, the people would run out at the gates of the city. They would take their cloaks off. They would lay them on the ground so that he could walk on them, signifying, we are under your submission. You can put your feet on us. We are here to obey. And that's exactly what these people do with Jesus. They say, look, We are under your submission, Jesus. You can put your feet on us. And that is a hard thing for us to do in our culture is to submit, one, to anything, and two, submit to anything from God. (coughs) This is one of the greatest forms of worship. I don't want to say the greatest, but one of the greatest forms of worship. Singing, prayer, reading of the word only can be achieved by throwing our cloaks on the ground. By, that sign- by us signifying that we are submitting to him, then we can sing. By us signifying that we are submitting to him, then we come to the word. By us submitting to him, Then we lift our voices and praise, Hosanna. (coughs) Thank you. Last thought. The king is worthy of praise. This is a spiritual and political situation. 150 years earlier, when the Jews threw off the Syrians in the Maccabean revolt, they were welcomed back with the same chant, Psalm 118. From that moment on, it was kind of like this patriotic stars and stripes thing uh, uh, for, for the Jews, right? They come in, they bring this guy in, and they praise his name. Hosanna, he's the one to save us. Save us now. So it is not only spiritual in the eyes of some, <clears throat> but it's also patriotic. And he, God, is worthy of that praise. He is worthy of that praise. And I don't want to get super political here, but there were some in the crowd at that moment who saw this as just a political movement. They saw this as just, hey, hey, we're celebrating our patriotism and our freedom. And I'm not saying that our role in our democracy in the United States is something that we shouldn't participate in. It is absolutely something that we have the privilege to participate in. However, when we see religion or our faith as merely political and we stop seeing the value of who he is in it, we've done something way wrong. 
we've done something way wrong. Please know that our allegiance to Christ is far greater and far above our allegiance to our country. And we need to be dictating our political viewpoints from his kingship, from his lordship, and his love. I lied, last thing. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he looked around and at it, at everything, it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the 12. Throw that last map up really quick. So he comes in from, from Bethany and Bethphage through the Mount of Olives. Hey, check out what he walks through. Anybody see that? The Garden of Gethsemane, right? And he walks. Now, most of the time, you would come down, all the way down, and then through these gates down here, and then back up through the temple. And remember, the Gentiles couldn't go into the inner courts. They could only stay on the outer courts. And that royal porch or the Gentiles' court is where Jesus did most of his teaching. But instead, this time, he, he's coming back, right? This is awesome. He comes through the Mount of Olives. Instead of going down and around, he goes up. And anybody see at the, the top little gate right there? What's that called? The Sheep Gate. Instead of coming down and around where he's supposed to go, he goes up through the Sheep Gate, which nobody's even allowed to go through. Because that is for the spotless lamb that these guys can come in and buy to provide sacrifice to God. He walks into the sheep gate preparing uh, uh, his way, preparing the way of the king of kings and lord of lords. And the king walks in and he sees everything. Five times in Mark's gospel it says he looked around at everything. In Mark 3, he asks the religious leaders, hey, can I heal on the Sabbath? And he looks at them. And he was angry at their hardness of heart. In Mark 3, later on, Jesus looked around uh, uh, at his, the people that he was teaching because they thought he was doing some stuff that may be not popular. And he looks around at the crowd and then he says, who is my mother and my brother? Anyone who does the will of God is my mother and my brother. Mark 5, the woman uh, who has the issue with the blood, uh, she touches his cloak and he looks around with sincerity and love in his heart and he wants to, to, to tell her, go, your faith has made you well. Mark 10, we just looked at it, the rich young ruler, he looked at his disciples. He saw them, he saw their need and he says, you can't follow me if there are things that are more important than me. How hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom? Mark 11, he looks at everything in the temple and sizes it up. And he goes, I'll be back tomorrow. Because it's late tonight. I'm going to go to Bethany. I'm going to spend the night. And the next week we're going to look at Jesus cursing the fig tree and cleansing the temple and pre further preparing his kingship. He sees everything. And he certainly is not fooled by phony worship. By these Pharisees in there selling sacrifices at three and four and five times what they should be selling them for.
My uh, view of this passage has been renewed. I won't say it's... I've heard it every Easter for the past 36 years. But man, this is the God that we worship. This is the God that is King of kings and Lord of lords. He has the power to save you. If you don't know him in here, this God that we worship is all-powerful. He is all-sufficient. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. He wants to save you. This God that we serve is all-powerful, all-knowing, and he is sufficient. And if you know him in here and you're, you're phony worshiping, it's time to cut that out. He's not fooled by that. Allow the Lord to penetrate your heart. Run to him. We're going to sing a song uh, uh, today that says, you cannot be stopped. Our God cannot be stopped. This is, the, this is what I love to preach on the very most is because I know that above all, my heart is wicked and it's terrible. I'm a wretched person. However, just like I stood before the judge this week and he said, case dismissed, you're free to go. I stand before God, the judge, as a free man. And you know what? Just like my case, my strongest opposition doesn't even show up to the court proceeding because he knows He's already been defeated. Game over. It is finished. And this passage is the ushering in of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we should scream with our everything that we got. Hosanna in the highest. Praise be to God. He is my God who has saved me. He has pulled me out of the muck and mire. And he cannot be stopped. Amen.